All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter number 10. Hebrews chapter number 10. What a joy it was to worship this morning. Hope those songs encouraged your heart. Last week we had uh, Kathy on the keyboard for the first time. This week we had Blake Swanson on the drums for the first time. So we got a lot of new faces being worked in and certainly love seeing the young people get involved in uh, worshiping the Lord together. A call to persevere is the title of this morning's message, A Call to Persevere. This morning we're going to do our best to attempt verses 26 to 31, and then uh, next week we'll finish out the chapter, Lord willing. Because these uh, two texts that we've covered last week and this week are very much connected, I wanted to just remind us of a little bit of what we discussed and unpacked last week in verses 19 through 25. We discussed a better assurance. The heart of that message, if you'll remember with me, was confidence. The author of Hebrews was calling us to a better assurance. Why? Because it is a confident assurance. There was three core exhortations uh, yes, or excuse me, last week. Confidently draw near to God in faith. Confidently hold fast the confession of hope. And confidently consider the body in love. This was a message from last week, and it was a call to confidence, a better assurance. Why? Because it is rooted in Jesus Christ. And because of his work, we can be confident. And because of what he has done, we can persevere. And because the work is finished once and for all, we can have endurance to the end. This is what the author of Hebrews would have us to reflect on as we continue to move our way through chapter number 10. In verse number 19, we had this, Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And then verse 35, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. This bookend of confidence is, again, the intent of the author. And I wonder this morning, as you come into the service, are you confident in Jesus Christ? Look, I'll be honest. The, the cares of this life, difficulties, different situations, trials, they are real and they weigh heavy on our hearts. And that can shake us at times to the very core of our faith. So I wonder, is your faith waning? Is it, is it wavering? Is it, is it struggling as the cares of this world have lingered in your life? As trials have persisted? As you've continued to walk through a season of uncertainty that just seems almost too heavy to bear. I would encourage you this morning to look to Jesus. This morning there's a call 
to persevere. A call to persevere. There's a confidence that can and should be realized as it is rooted in the person and work of Jesus. There was a glorious text last week that we got to unfold. And here this morning, as we continue to work through chapter 10, these three previous exhortations are going to continue on with this theme of confidence, and it's going to now hit a warning, a sobering warning for us all to consider our confidence in Jesus. There's a call to persevere, and this description of perseverance is communicated in terms of endurance. And it is this grace-enabled endurance that the author will establish as the proof of true faith in Christ. Because, friends, if, if our faith is, is rooted and placed in anything else other than the finished work of Jesus Christ, it will not endure. And we will not persevere because Jesus is the only one that can do that work. So this progression, it comes to us by way this morning of a warning. This is our fourth warning that we have explicitly unpacked in this, this book of Hebrews. And it could be considered potentially the most direct warning that we found in this book. But each warning has served to reveal a unique aspect concerning the evil and unbelieving heart of the one who turns away. Because ultimately at each warning that we have come uh, to consider in the book of Hebrews, we have come away saying, the one who has fallen away has an evil and unbelieving heart. They've never truly placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we are here to consider this very sobering warning. What are warnings? Warnings in any setting are designed to identify and avoid a potential danger. Could you agree with that? I came up with that on the fly, but I thought it was fairly decent. What's a warning, right? A warning is this. It's, it's designed to identify and avoid a potential danger. You see this oftentimes when you're on the road driving. We have different signs. Do not enter. Wrong way. Restricted area. Slow down. Steep decline. Sharp turn. Stop ahead. All these types of signs that we will see on the roadways are designed to communicate, identify, and avoid a potential danger. All the way through the book of Hebrews, we've had these danger signs that we've been confronted with. You remember them. There's potential danger. Consider your heart. Identify that evil and unbelieving heart so that you may be able to enter into God's rest and not miss out on the eternal life that he offers through his son, Jesus Christ. This great high priest the glorious gospel that we have unpacked week after week after week. If we, as we have gazed intently into the face of Jesus, I hope your strength 
I hope your encouragement, I hope your faith has been bolstered as we have seen all that Jesus has done, is doing, and will do in the days ahead. But the text this morning is a warning once again for us to identify and avoid this potential danger. What is the danger here? Well, it comes by way of our big idea. The big idea of our text this morning is this. Seeking salvation in anything other than Jesus is futile, dangerous, and will result in God's eternal judgment. Seeking salvation in anything other than Jesus is futile, dangerous, and will result in God's eternal judgment. Do you join me in prayer this morning as we ask God to bless our time in his word? God, we come to you right now. I pray that you would quiet our hearts and our minds, that we would consider Jesus, and we would consider this call to persevere that we would consider this call to persevere through the lens of this sobering warning. And God, I pray that if there are tares among the wheat this morning, that I pray that that would be exposed. And I pray that they would see Jesus. And that they would respond rightly to him as Savior and Lord. And that today would be the day of salvation. I pray for the one who's discouraged, who's struggling, who's uncertain. I pray that through this text, God, you would help them to truly discern and understand if they are truly in the faith. Even as Paul admonishes us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I pray that we would do that this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 6 of Hebrews, the author characterizes the sin of apostasy as crucifying once again and holding up to contempt Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here in chapter number 10, Apostasy is described in terms of association and fellowship. That very familiar verse, verse number 25 that we we read just last week, it was an exhortation to do what? To consider the body in love. But how do we do that? Primarily by gathering faithfully and continually and consistently together as the body of Christ. So this is why the author urgently challenged the believers to not neglect the meeting together as was the habit of some. Because there's danger in disassociating with the body of Christ. There is danger in isolation. There is danger in wandering. How best to bolster our faith, how best to exemplify our faith and to gather with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And so the sum, as was the habit of some, the sum in verse 25 is who the author has in mind for this warning. Again, this isn't about attendance when we consider not neglecting the habit, not neglecting to gather together. It's not about attendance. This is about identifying with Jesus. 
and celebrating faith in Jesus. Ultimately, the sum that failed to consistently and faithfully gather, the sum that fell away. Most think that because of this Hebrew-Jewish audience, that most of them would have fallen away from this gathering of Christians, of Christ followers, and they would have turned back to what? Judaism. The Old Testament law, the sacrificial system that they upheld and valued so much. Their hope was not in Jesus. Their hope did not find the foreshadowing elements of this Old Testament sacrificial system. Rather, their hope was in that thing itself. And so they failed to continue to gather. They were not there and available to be stirred up towards love and good works. They were not there considering the body of Christ as it was gathering faithfully together. They had fallen away, as was the habit of some. So the author doesn't have some arbitrary falling away in mind. It's specific. The the warning is urgent, and the consequences are very much severe for us to consider this morning. So we've got three aspects we're going to look at in our text. Just three simple points that are going to guide our way through verses 26 to 31. We're going to look at three points. A sin exposed, a heart revealed, and a judgment defined. A sin exposed, a heart revealed, and a judgment defined. Let's first look at a sin exposed. A sin exposed. As we indicated in the introduction, the primary sin in mind here is the one that has deliberately neglected the gathering so much so that they have abandoned it altogether. This individual that has deliberately gone on sinning, the immediate context is what? Gathering. There's some that have failed to do this. This is what we should be keeping in mind as we consider and unpack verse number 26. So that said, the term for sin here would also have, although specific, would also have this general understanding in mind, breaking God's law, living in a way that denies and contradicts the truth of God's word. And friends, if if there is sin in your life, whether it's neglecting to gather, or whether it's some general idea of sin, of of breaking God's law, living in a way that contradicts and denies the truth of God's word and his sovereignty over your life, if you deliberately and consistently keep on progressing in that sin, the author of Hebrews would have you to be very, very concerned. Big or small, one category or another, if we consistently persist and deliberately progress in sin, day after day, week after week, month after month, even year after year, dare I say decade after decade, we should have severe concern about whether or not we are truly in the faith. Our hearts should break over sin. We should desire to to repent of our sin, to be restored in right relationship with the Lord. And so the first warning here in this passage is exposing this life of sin. 
The author is, again, careful to reveal this sin in specific terms. What are those? The, this individual has gone on sinning, meaning there was a habitual nature to this disregard to the truth of God's word. Scripture speaks to this disposition, this testimony of one's life, often in a number of different books, specifically in Romans 6, Paul challenges his readers there uh, to not persist in this type of living. He says in Romans 6, verses 1 and 2, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul says, By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 1 John 3, a beautiful, beautiful epistle and revealing these true evidences of faith. John, 1 John, excuse me, chapter 3, verse number 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away, take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot Keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This, again, is the heart of even our text here in Hebrews chapter number 10. How does this individual keep on sinning? Deliberately. Deliberately. Even in 1 John 3 here, it's, it's clear that there is a, a segment of those that are in the church that are present even to receive this letter, that are among brothers and sisters in Christ. There are those that have kept on sinning. This is the testimony of life. This is the pattern of their life. They are not born of God. They've knew, never truly tasted and seen that he is good. They've never truly known true saving faith. They're present, they're available, they're in the right place, but they don't know Jesus. So this individual that keeps on practicing sin is doing it deliberately, willfully, knowingly. The term in the Greek carries the idea that is obstinate, malicious, from choice, without compulsion or fear. Through this continual state of deliberate sin, this has occurred after receiving what? The knowledge of truth, which has rendered this individual fully responsible. So this person knows who Jesus is. They understand the gospel. They've heard it. They know it in their head. 
but they are not in relationship with Jesus Christ. They might be practicing a religion, just like some of these followers that may have got caught up in the church. They said, hey, you know what, this Judaism thing, this Old Testament law, the sacrificial system, yeah, I, I kind of... This, this Jesus thing is kind of, kind of making sense, so yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a part of that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that for a little bit. Maybe some of their friends or, or neighbors uh, followed Jesus, gave their life to him. But yet at the end of the day, they didn't persevere. They didn't endure. Why? Because they were never really truly in Christ. They know the truth. But they keep on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth. So they go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth. Christ has been made known to them. They have seen and experienced the blessing of fellowship within the body of Christ. And the irony of this all is that there no longer remains what? A sacrifice for sins. At the end of verse number 26, when this individual walks away from this revealed truth and returns once again to his own way. And in the context of this book, again, these individuals likely would have been returning back to the Old Testament ways of Judaism and the law. We know in the previous chapters, chapters 8, 9, and 10, there's been this description of the old covenant, the sacrificial system. It has been described as what? Ineffective. The old covenant has been abolished and the new covenant through the blood of Jesus that we're going to celebrate even this morning as we observe the Lord's table. The new covenant has been inaugurated through the blood of Jesus. And it remains until he comes to receive his ransomed bride. One commentator said it this way, to sin deliberately happens when people through choice and from an evil heart of unbelief depart from the living God. They publicly declare that God was not in Christ's sacrifice. This is what they essentially are saying by the testimony of their life. They publicly declare that God was not in Christ's sacrifice. The author goes on here, quoting from Psalm number 40, toward the beginning of chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. Do you remember them? Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In bird offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. So Jesus foreshadows this all the way back in Psalm number 40. That he is doing away with the first in order to establish the second, and that by that new covenant, we all have been sanctified through the body and the blood of Jesus Christ once for all. So friends, I want us to consider 
there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What does this mean? When they fall away, to go back to the Old Testament sacrificial law. There is no sacrifice that they can make to atone for their sins. Do you remember our big idea at this point? The big idea was what? Seeking salvation in anything other than Jesus is futile, dangerous, and will result in God's eternal judgment. This is ultimately the testimony of the one who has fallen away. They are seeking salvation for their own benefit in something else other than Jesus Christ. And there's no longer a sacrifice that can be made. Why? Because the old is abolished. The new covenant has been inaugurated in the personal work of Jesus Christ. And so there's a warning. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Apart from the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, there is no hope. There is no sacrifice for sin now apart from Jesus Christ. A sin exposed. Secondly, we're going to look at a judgment defined. A judgment defined. Verse number 27, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved? Again, the only hope for those who abandon God's plan of redemption by grace through faith in Christ alone is verse number 27. A fearful expectation of judgment. This is the only hope. This is the only future that is promised for those who abandon God's plan of redemption of by grace through faith in Christ alone. This is why Jesus declared in John 14, I am the way. The truth and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me. If we are placing our trust, our hope in anything else other than Jesus, friends, our future is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries of God. As Dave, Pastor Dave Welch even prayed during our pastoral prayer time this morning, these descriptions of God. These topics in general are certainly not popular to discuss in the modern church. Yeah, we'll celebrate grace. We'll certainly talk about mercy. We'll talk about love. But we don't want to talk about wrath. We don't want to talk about judgment. We don't want to talk about fury of fire that will consume adversaries. Friends, this is a sobering reality that we must come to grips with. Dislike it as you may, it does not change the fact that it is truth. We don't have to feel warm and fuzzy about the message. We don't have to like the message, but we do have to acknowledge the truth of the inspired and errant word of God. That if we are without Christ and apart from Christ, our future is a fearful expectation of judgment. And so the author of Hebrews is shooting up the flares. There's a warning. Are you in Christ? 
Are you clinging to religion or do you know Jesus in relationship as your personal Savior? Verse number 27. The author is referencing back to Isaiah 26, 11, which states, O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. He also combines that with Zephaniah 118, which states, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. So there's a paraphrase here in verse number 27 that the author of Hebrews connects from Isaiah 26, 11 and Zephaniah 1, 18. And in this paraphrase, our author makes these two Old Testament verses that paint a very clear picture of the totality of this judgment. It is severe. It is complete. And it is total. It's also interesting that the word for fury here in verse Number 27 is the Greek word zelos, which refers to God's zeal, right? This is the direct word that we get our word zeal from. It refers to God's zeal for his own glory and his jealousy that he has for his covenant people to be absolutely loyal to not going on and worshiping other gods or idols or pursuing their own way. Our God is a jealous God. And through this description of judgment, this is what we see. Certainly we see judgment, but behind that judgment, what do we see? A relentless God who wants to be in relationship with his creation, who made a way through his son, Jesus Christ. So there is hope in the midst of the judgment, amen? Do we see that? Jesus is our hope, but let us see this judgment for what it is. This fury, this jealous zeal that God has for his covenant people to be in relationship with him. The author goes on to describe this imminent judgment by a lesser to greater contrast in verse number 28. Read it with me. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved? So he uses this illustration of the law of Moses here in verse number 28 and 29. There were varying degrees of punishment uh, for breaking the law. The most severe consequences were designated for those that deliberately sinned, who knew what was right, and yet they chose to do what was wrong. To sin in this way was to act in a way that demonstrated that they were setting aside the law of Moses. And I want you to hang on with me as we make this connection here, because I think it's, it's very important. So the one who goes on deliberately sinning in the Old Testament day, it would be described as one that was setting aside the law of Moses. 
And at first reading, that may not sound like some grave offense, but in reality, to deliberately sin and set aside the law of Moses is to reject what? The very authority and sovereignty of God. It was God that spoke the law. It was God that gave these commandments to Moses. And so for this person to deliberately sin and to set aside the law, to act and to live as if this law didn't even exist, was to say, God, your authority means nothing. In fact, there is no authority because I am the authority of my life. Therefore, I will live how I want. I will live how I desire. This is what it means to set aside the law of Moses. This type of sin would have required capital punishment. The sin would have been established by two or three witnesses under the law and this capital punishment, the ending of a life, get this, would be the lesser punishment. Why? You see the comparison there in verses 28 and 29. How could the ending of a life be the lesser punishment? Because rejecting God's plan of salvation through Jesus doesn't just have implications on this life. It certainly does. But more so, rejecting God's plan of salvation, the setting aside of God's plan has eternal implications. The greater punishment. So the one who deliberately keeps on sinning after receiving the knowledge of truth primarily struggles with submission to what? Authority. At the core of every rebellion against Christianity is one of a lack of submission to the authority of God and his word. That's interesting, isn't it? Do we see that struggle in our day? In this postmodern day that we live in, we are self-governing, self-actualizing, self-promoting, and the presence of a sovereign God and creator poses a big inconvenience on all this self-talk that we have in the year 2023. Unwilling to submit our lives to an authority outside of ourselves will always result in falling away. The judgment is eternal and the warning is clear. If you do not know Jesus this morning and you're struggling with submitting your life to his authority in his way, repent this morning and believe the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our third and final point this morning is a heart revealed. What do we see about the heart of this individual. Those three parallel clauses which define what it means in verse number 26 if we deliberately keep on sinning. These three clauses are going to expose or paint a picture, if you will, of the disposition, the demeanor, the attitude of this individual who deliberately keeps on sinning. The first is that we see that the one that has fallen away tramples the Son of God underfoot. 
We see this individual first tramples the Son of God underfoot. See it there in verse number 29. How much worse punishment do you think, that's where we paused, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? The one who is guilty of this sin is described as trampling on the Son of God. That is literally meaning to tread him underfoot. This word in the Greek expresses the highest kind of scorn, contempt, and malice that can be conjured up in our hearts. To tread underfoot is to despise and to insult. This brazen contempt is directed toward both the person of Christ and his rightful authority over our lives. Do you see this, this type of energy and emotion in this day we live in? You speak the name of Jesus, you claim to be a Christian, and people rise up and take arms against you simply because of Jesus. We're reminded in John 17, as Jesus is praying back to the Father for those who will follow him, that's us in the days ahead, he says, I pray for them. He would care for us and take care of us. Why? Because they have hated him he reminds us that they will also hate us. This is the life of being a Christ follower. We're not going to be liked all of the time. We're not going to be, I hate to say it, a popular majority, friends. That's a different feel that many of us may have had and past years and, and maybe decades. But we can persevere. We can endure. We do have a better hope and a better assurance because Jesus Christ has made a way. And the work is done. It is finished. No more dead I owe. What beautiful songs we sang this morning that spoke into the reality of this warning. Run to Jesus, friends. Run to Jesus. So I wonder, is there bitterness in your heart? Is there contempt? Is there disdain for some reason, some circumstances, some life story that you have that, that just had, had, you've, you've caused yourself to raise your fist to God and become bitter? Bring that to Jesus. Lay that at the foot of the cross. Not only do we trample the Son of God underfoot, but this individual also profanes the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. To profane, profane, excuse me, simply means to do what? To make unholy. To make unholy. The heart revealed here simply disregards the blood of Jesus as unholy. To profane the blood of Jesus means that this individual disregards the blood of Jesus as worthless. 
It has no value. And if it has no value and we continue to unpack that and reverse engineer that heart and that disposition a bit more, it is quite telling. Follow me here. Jesus' blood has value because of who Jesus is. He is the incarnate God, lived a perfect life, was the Lamb of God that had come to take away the sins of the world. Because he had not sinned, and because he perfectly obeyed the Father's will and went to a cross and shed his blood to atone for the sins of mankind, his blood is eternally valuable and worthy and holy. His blood has no value when we attempt to strip away his deity and to make him just another man and yet another attempt to avoid what? His rightful authority over our lives. If Jesus is just another teacher, another prophet, another good man who lived in history, then the fact of his death which is historical fact. It has no merit. Why? Because we profane the blood of Jesus. We deem him as unholy, unworthy, of no value, because he is not God. So the one who deliberately keeps on sinning, it's a big deal. Because as that heart is revealed, as more of that sin is exposed, we are trampling on the very person and work of Jesus. We're profaning the very blood and sacrifice that we have deemed through the testimony of Scripture as better. And so, friends, there's a warning. When this individual lives in this way, they profane the blood of Jesus, the third description as this individual insults the spirit of grace. This individual insults the spirit of grace. One commentator mentioned that it is all too possible to be part of the covenant community, even be sanctified, which literally just means to be set apart, right? So we are, as a corporate body, sanctified, set apart from the unbelieving world, identifying with the covenant community, but then through unbelief, this evil and unbelieving heart that has been exposed, we throw away the benefits offered in the gospel through the personal work of Jesus Christ. Because the Holy Spirit is bearing witness to us through the word of God, and through the testimony of the body of Christ, that Christ's death secures forgiveness of sins. To repudiate that, to disassociate with Christ and his blood is to outrage the spirit as the messenger of this grace. To repudiate means to refuse to accept or to be associated with. This is, again, the heart and demeanor of verse number 25, right? The one who has neglected to meet together as is the habit of some. To not meet together is to disassociate with the body of Christ. This is the importance of the ordinance of baptism. Namely, when we uh, complete our baptism interviews and we talk to the individual who has claimed to accept Jesus Christ as a Lord and personal Savior, we describe baptism in terms of identifying with Jesus. 
associating with Jesus. There's no shame or regret in saying that Jesus has saved me. And because of that, I want to give my life to him and I want to follow him. I want to go and make disciples. This is the heart of the one who comes and presents himself for baptism, to associate, to identify with Jesus. This is the heart of true faith. Our author circles back one more time with a final warning in verses 30 through 31. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Our author reminds us again that it is fearful. It should be a fearful thing for us to be confronted by God in his wrath apart from the cleansing of Christ's blood. Let me say that one more time. Our author reminds us in this text that it is a fearful thing to be confronted by God in his wrath apart from the cleansing work of Christ's blood. Jesus paid a debt that we could not pay. He took the wrath from the Father so that we could be ushered into a right relationship with God the Father. That our relationship with him would not be defined by sin or separation, but our relationship with God through Jesus Christ can be defined as sons and daughters. Ushered out of darkness into light. Co-heirs with Jesus Christ. No longer judgment, but promise is given to the one who is in Christ. This phrase in verse 31 is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, to fall into the hands of someone. It's a common expression even somewhat in our day, it refers to anyone falling into or under the power of his enemies. When a person falls into the hands of his enemies, there is no law or love between him and them. One commentator says, and he can only expect nothing but death. When we fall into the hands of an enemy, you may have heard the saying. This is what it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Apart from Jesus Christ, we are in enmity with God. There's nothing in the law, there's nothing in the gospel at that moment that can be appealed to to stop the punishment. It is a dreadful thing. It is a fearful thing. And friends, this warning is for us all to consider for our own life and those around us so that we can consider the body. And stir up one another towards love and good works. It's a dreadful thing. People, 
These days, in every generation, we're prone to not think about this dreadful reality. Why? Because we're so distracted and so busy, and the cares of this world are blinding to this reality that there is a sure judgment that is to come for those that are without Jesus Christ. But there is a sure promise, a better assurance, a perseverance that only comes through the finished work of Jesus Christ that is ours in Christ Jesus. So friends, remember this this morning. God's judgment exists and it will be dreadful and terrible and eternally destructive. But friends, remember this morning that there is hope. There is a once-for-all sacrifice. There is a better covenant, a better promise, a better high priest that has done a work that we could not do. And friends, we do not have to experience this judgment. We can experience the hope of a relationship through Jesus Christ. And I pray, friends, that would be the end for us all. It was a call to persevere. A call to persevere, not in our own strength, not in our way, not in our own understanding, not trying to go back to something else, not to fall away and try to figure life out in our own way, not so that our good works outweigh our bad works. No, friends, we are to persevere only through the gospel, only in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so reminded once again, that the big idea of this morning's message was seeking salvation in anything other than Jesus is futile, it's dangerous, and it will result in God's eternal judgment. Just like these Hebrew followers that were present and available and there with God's church, they fell away. They did not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. They went back to Judaism. They went back and placed their hope in something else other than Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus, friends, this morning and persevere. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your love, for your grace in our lives. What a text for us to consider over the last couple weeks as we now look forward to coming to observe and to partake in the body, as the body of Christ in the Lord's table, this time of communion. What a joyful fellowship it is for us to simply remember Jesus. And so God, I pray that if there's anybody here this morning who's been struggling with understanding faith, they've been struggling with understanding what their relationship with Jesus looks like, They're not confident in their relationship with you. I pray that they would seek us out, that they would um, be willing in transparency to, to share that feeling in their heart and in their life. And I pray, God, that we'd be able to come alongside them, point them to Scripture, and show them the hope that there truly is in a relationship with Jesus. God, I pray that the judgment that we spoke of this morning um, would not be viewed or understood as some scare tactic, but that this fearful expectation of judgment would be seen as it is an incredibly gracious warning that you've given us in your word. And I thank you for every single person that's here 
to hear this warning and to remember the hope that we have in Jesus. I pray now as we uh, look forward to partaking of this time of communion, I pray that you'd be glorified in everything. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.